Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. I apologize for the romantic tension just now as Christine handed the clicker to me <laughs> getting up here. Um, she was hosting this morning. When, uh, when we were in high school and we were first starting to like each other and get to know each other, she was, she was the president of the National Honor Society. And I was going to be the president of the National Honor Society for the following year. There's a ceremony that the school did where you, you pass the torch, and on stage, I got to shake her hand, and it was uh, electric. So it's, uh, it took, takes me back to that now when, uh, when we do this kind of handoff. So um, that was not edifying. We'll strike that from the, the podcast, from the recording. We'll start now. Welcome. We're working through our series on Peter. So we're actually reaching the end of the, like, the, the content of the text that we are going through. So uh, you may recall that we, uh, as background leading into this series, we did uh, a couple of lessons around various aspects of Peter's own life that we know from uh, the scriptures. And then we jumped into 1 Peter, where we have been for the last couple of weeks. Today, we are going to cover the remaining chapters of First Peter, and then next week we'll do one lesson to conclude that before we move on. So this is the, we've reached kind of the, the last stretch of the book that um, we're talking through. And um, uh, there, so, you know, we're, we're not going to read all three uh, uh, chapters to prep for this, but I want to take you through some of the key texts that I think draw out really the theme, not only uh, of just the, the remaining chapters of First Peter, but really the central theme that's been running through the whole book and that has been consistent with the things that other teachers uh, have been sharing in this series uh, up to this point, okay? So there are a few passages we'll, we'll go through, uh, so follow along with me for some of these. Um, so the first part here, right, we're transitioning to, like, um, uh, Pastor Tom last week covered um, instructions that Peter gives uh, around the dynamics between uh, enslaved people uh, and the enslavers, uh, husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, right? So that was where we were at with an underlying attitude of being self-sacrificial towards uh, other people and especially towards your enemies. So this really just picks up from that and brings it home. So it says, finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love for one another, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. It is for this that you were called. And then just uh, a few verses later, Peter will say, but even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated, but in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Uh, and then uh, continuing in that same thought, um, we have Peter saying, for it is better to suffer for doing good if uh, suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. A few verses later then, um, Peter will sharpen this theme more. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. 
And then a little bit later it says, yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. Now, one interesting thing to note uh, as part of background here is the, the word Christian to describe people who follow Jesus is actually not used very much in the New Testament at all. Um, there are a couple references in the book of Acts, and there's this reference, and that's it. And a lot of scholars looking at the way that that very rare term, at least in the New Testament era, is used, have come to the conclusion that it is very likely that this was a term not one that followers of Jesus themselves chose for themselves, but rather it was a pejorative term that outsiders used to describe followers of Jesus. Because even here you see there's a subtext of the name being placed upon you and an attitude that you're supposed to have about when that name is put upon you and is very similar to how that shows up in the book of Acts. Uh, if that's true, which I think is likely, then this is an example of one of many terms that uh, stigmatized groups have taken from the people who are stigmatizing them, co-opted them, rallied around them, and used it as a term uh, of bonding and solidarity within the group. Historically, many groups have done that with racial slurs, right? And this is, this is an example of something like that. There's this kind of linguistic dynamic going on. This also sets the tone, too, for a lot of what um, Peter is going to be talking about towards the back half of this book. This is an attitude of what should your posture be when the world is not happy about the things that you do for the sake of Jesus, and, um, and what Peter is offering uh, in what you see here is a very, uh, a very challenging perspective, something that's really hard to live out. Love your enemy, uh, bless and do not curse. Don't repay abuse for abuse, right? These are the kinds of things that um, instead of saying, wonderful, I aspire to live up to that, our brains automatically think of scenarios where they're like, you can't possibly mean that I should have that attitude in this scenario, right? That seems, uh, seems immoral to, to actually be so passive uh, in the face of injustices in the world. In fact, often when these types of passages come up, this type of exhortation, there are a lot of debates that end up really um, going into uh, like very specific, well-worn territories. It's almost like there's, there's a predictability to these debates where you can expect a couple things to happen. One is you can expect somebody to say, are you telling me that if you could go back in time and stop Hitler, you wouldn't kill him, you would repay uh, evil with love, right? That's a classic example, right? The idea being it is naive to have that kind of attitude towards evil all the time. There's, um, in the world of uh, argumentation, there's, there's this uh, rhetorical strategy um, called reductio ad Hitlerum, where the longer an internet debate goes on, the likelier it is you will be compared to Hitler uh, as part of the discussion. This is not that, but this is like that, where the longer a debate about your response, your violent or nonviolent response to violence, the longer that debate goes on, the likelier it comes becomes that somebody is going to ask you what you would do if you could travel back in time and you had the option to kill Hitler or not. Um, there's another very common scenario that comes up. So we got one that is a global scale of a conflict and another one that is hyper-individualistic, but just as likely to come up in these kinds of conversations. And that is, um, oh, you're telling me that if someone broke into your house 
and wanted to murder your family, you would respond to that with love and nonviolence. You wouldn't try to kill them, right? This is, like, again, just very practical scenarios, right? Whether you could travel back in time to kill Hitler, how you would stop an intruder uh, into your house who wants to threaten to kill your family, just, you know, everyday occurrences that we should center these kinds of debates around. The, um, one of, like, it is, it is uh, shockingly how, like, how common these kinds of scenarios come up in those kinds of discussions. I literally, just a few days ago, overheard, like at work, two uh, male coworkers, uh, one saying to the other, uh, everybody wants a sensitive man until someone tries to break into their house. And they just laughed and walked into the elevator and left. I mean, just this, this is just natural, right? People say this kind of stuff all the time. And with that kind of perspective, it really does become a question like, what does it mean? What does it look like for this to be this way that Peter is uh, sharing as a way to actually overcome the evil that we see in this world? And uh, if you've been a part of the tr Christian tradition for a long time, perhaps you, you're very actually familiar with these very controversial statements that people like Peter give about how to deal with violence. But uh, it, it, I think it always helps to center on the backdrop of where Peter got this idea from. So this has been a part of Jesus, the Jesus tradition from Jesus himself. And uh, it is all the more absurd to think about Jesus saying these things when you think about the context that he entered in uh, and the context in which he claimed to be the Messiah, the hopes and dreams of all of God's people for the restoration that they could long for. So in a world of people who claimed to be the Messiah um, where you know, there were uh, against the backdrop of wars, uh, constant revolts, freedom fighters, zealots, all those kinds of things. Here is Jesus saying things like this. You have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that, uh, and then he, he goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you, uh, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The thing is, Jesus talked like that all the time. It is the, the case from beginning to end, really, the, like Jesus' ethic that he was putting forward is one of loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who persecute you. And even as he was dying on the cross for a false arrest, he said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That is the kind of mercy Jesus extended in the face of the evil that he experienced. It really does boil down to that. Love, pray, bless, forgive. That is, the, that is the central ethic that Jesus brought. Again, remember, against the backdrop of people's expectations of how a Messiah was going to free Israel and the whole world from oppression. 
It is, uh, it's this kind of teaching that warrants the response that many people give in the Gospels, like, for example, a temple guard saying, we've never heard anyone speak like this. That is what, that's how Jesus' words are hitting the audience. Uh, there are debates that scholars have um, where they're, you know, they try to piece together of all of the different types of things that Jesus taught, which ones would have been perhaps the most controversial or the most unpopular of the time. So there are many to choose from, right? There, uh, I think people often will bring up that Jesus had many, many harsh words and warnings to say to rich people. So they're very controversial for those in power. But it was also very comforting for those who weren't, poor people, people on the margins. Jesus actually elevated women in a way that infuriated a lot of the people uh, in his surrounding, which of course would be offensive to a lot of men who are interested in holding power. But it was great news for the women that Jesus interacted with, right? There are all these kinds of dynamics, but one that stands out, that's the kind that it had the, the uh, potential to offend everybody is this approach. Whether you are rich or poor, male or female, uh, Jew or Gentile, uh, it is a natural instinct to want bad things to happen to people who are doing bad things to you. This stands out, I would argue, and this has been true just in my own experience in coming to know Jesus, the thing that to me is the hardest, the thing that is unique, uh, uniquely powerful about following Jesus is trying to live this kind of message out that is as unpopular then as it is today. Um, I think what is all the more remarkable uh, about the Jesus tradition in the face of how uh, unpopular this teaching was is also how, uh, how consistent the Jesus movement ran with this kind of teaching. Um, for how challenging it is to uh, comprehend living out this ethic, um, you have a diversity of voices in the early church, starting from Jesus' followers themselves, all running in different directions uh, in life, but carrying this core ethic with them. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul, who did not meet Jesus uh, during Jesus' lifetime, before he was crucified, um, who largely ran in independent circles from Peter and a lot of the Christians that hung around Jerusalem, nevertheless uses language in his letters that are remarkably similar to this language that we're, we're seeing here. And then there is Peter himself, who went on a personal journey of uh, how to live out these words uh, and, and teach it to others. So there is, um, uh, there is a, a text within the Gospel of Matthew um, that shows uh, an altercation that kind of highlights where Peter is at during Jesus' own ministry and how to live out this, this kind of ethic of how one responds to violence. So when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, so before he is going to be arrested, put up in a mock trial, and then put up for execution, uh, the guards come to him, and there is an account in Matthew that a different gospel, the gospel of John attributes, you'll see here, the, the person uh, who is uh, pulling out their sword is Peter, okay? So this is what the gospel of Matthew says. Suddenly, one of those with Jesus, that's Peter, put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. So that's, cutting, uh, that's striking back at the people who are arresting Jesus. That's what Peter did. He had spent his entire ministry with Jesus, and when it came time to uh, throw hands, Peter was like, throwing hands in this case looks like pulling out my sword and fighting back. And this is the immediate response in the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword 
back into its place. Okay, this account is told in multiple different gospels. There are slightly different reasons given each time for why Jesus says to put your sword back in its place. But in this particular text, the reason that the gospel of Matthew gives is not Peter, put your sword back into its place because I want to die. This is all part of God's plan. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, Peter, put your sword back in its place because I have a bigger sword right now that I can pull out, right? Or it'll be t- it's not time for swords right now. It'll be time for swords later. None of that is his response. He says, for all who take the sword will die by the sword. This is not a condemnation of evil in this specific instance for this specific uh, reason. This is, this is putting violence on notice as a system or a way that the world works that is never going to cut it. It will not accomplish the goal that you are looking for. That's what Jesus believed when he was facing his arrest. There is, um, and obviously, like for Peter to be using this language in 1 Peter, the kind of language that we just read, he clearly got the message and embraced it and ran with it in seemingly very much the same way other followers of Jesus did. In fact, it is actually um, another remarkable part of the Jesus tradition to take uh, violent language and military language and uh, subvert it to say that the weapons that followers of Jesus fight with are the words that we speak. It's the truth that we say. And it is sacrificing our bodies as love. That is is the tools that are available to Christians. So even in our text today, Peter will say, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He'll say, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same intention. That's the weapon that that we are working with. And then lastly, uh, he'll uh, say that the reason that we do all of these things is because of all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. It seems like Peter, throughout the course of his life, has gotten on board with the idea that the only real way to end conflict and evil and systems of injustice in this world is through love. And um, we have mentioned this at various parts in this series, but uh, the early church tradition from multiple independent sources, uh, some to like as early as the late first century, seem to attest around the... the, idea that Peter was crucified, um, likely upside down, under the reign of Nero in Rome for following Jesus. Many of the uh, other followers of Jesus uh, met the same fate. And, uh, and it looks like, again, from what we can tell from various sources on the early church, that that was the largely consistent attitude of many followers of Jesus across many different parts of the known world at that time for centuries. That is, that's the kind of traction that this kind of message got. And I often think that it is a failure of our own imagination to look back and think uh, how naive uh, those kinds of things wouldn't work in my world today. I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more here. There is, um, there is a critique that I think New Testament writers, including Peter, offer that really is it's not just about Um, how your individual reaction to the violences that you experience in the world, um, like how that should be, but it is actually a critique of the whole system itself. 
the idea that the world, to say you've heard that it was said an eye for eye and tooth for tooth, that that is the default operating premise of the entire world. And if you're gonna choose not to be that way, you are working against that, that whole system, right? This is the idea. This is what militarism often is. And there are many uh, followers of Jesus and then other people who have been inspired by those kinds of teachings uh, throughout our own lifetimes or in, the, in recent centuries who have been able to creatively live out that kind of ethic. Some of the most famous ones I think we all would recognize. For example, Gandhi, uh, who is famously um, inspired by nonviolent approaches, led a freedom movement to, uh, uh, for India to get, for South Asia to get its independence from British colonizers, who famously said, an eye for an eye, we're hearkening back to that statement earlier, makes the whole world blind. Except Gandhi didn't say that. Actually, if you start, go through the sources, he, he, uh, it's, it's not uh, him, it was some, some historian. I don't know, does it not sound as cool if you find out Gandhi didn't say it? Is it less true? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think it has traction because there is something to it that does resonate with the Jesus tradition that we inherited. Another great compelling example of the way of living out this kind of ethic in our lifetimes comes from Malala Yousafzai, um, who, um, for context, quick context if you need it. Um, she was, she's, I think at the time was the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. She is from Pakistan and she has been an advocate for girls and women's education. Uh, in Pakistan, there was a time in her life where at the hands of the Taliban, she was shot and presumably uh, left for dead and she survived and has become uh, more of an advocate ever since. This is um, her take on her own experiences. You've seen on uh, Google that if you search your name and uh, the Taliban have threatened you. And I just could not believe it. I said, no, it's not true. And even after the threat, when we saw it, I was not worried about myself that much. I was worried about my father because we thought that the Taliban are not that much cruel that they would kill a child because I was 14 at that time. But then later on, I, I used to like started, I, I started thinking about that and I used to think, think that the Talib would come and he would just kill me. But then I said, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? Um, then I would reply myself that, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. But then I said, <laughs> <laughs> but then I said, if you hit a Talib with your shoe, then there would be no difference between you and that Talib. You must not treat others that much with cruelty and that much harshly. You must fight others, but through peace and through dialogue and through education. Then I said, I'll tell him how important education is and that I even want education for your children as well. And I'll tell him, that's what I want to tell you. Now do what you want. I know your father is, is backstage, and he's very proud of you, but would he be mad if I adopted you? <laughs> yeah, I, I let it play through because of the feels. Um, they, so this is, uh, like, 
I think these are good examples to remind us that this is not like some, believing in this kind of ethic is not some abstract exercise that was relevant in a different world a long time ago. This is something that people live out every day to enormous success beyond what uh, those of us with more limited imaginations could have accomplished. What's especially frustrating to me in a lot of just the regular dialogues that we have about what our own attitudes should be towards violence is instead of anchoring on concrete, actual discussions of real life problems to solve, we immediately go with um, uh, heroics, right? Like the idea of like, oh, like I, I, I would never have that kind of reaction if, uh, for example, if somebody broke into my house because that's, that's not who I am. Like my job is to defend uh, my family, right? The stupidity of this is, is so many of us say this. We take a bullet for you. We're never gonna have to do that. Like that is actually, ironically, the naive abstract exercise involved in this is you have a theology is never gonna mean anything. Meanwhile, you will spend every day in little ways exerting violence upon the people around you with it going completely unchecked while you're waiting for that one day, one day, just come into my house, come into my house and you'll see how I can respond. But even that, even that kind of scenario, I think, says a lot, like when people say they, that's where their, uh, their self-sacrifice ends, I think shows a short-sightedness uh, to our imagination that uh, theologian Greg Boyd uh, captured very well. So he, he describes specifically this, this kind of scenario that we're talking about. Threatening my uh, loved ones, in which case it's obvious I should resort to violence. What if I, starting today, what if we, starting today, uh, just started practicing what Jesus told us to do? I encourage people every day, pick out the person you love the least and pray for them. And if they're in your vicinity, ask, how can you serve them? Let's practice loving enemies uh, day in and day out. And then maybe we'll find, I think we will find, uh, at least some will find, that after 5 or 10 or 15 years of practicing, practicing enemy love, your character begins to change. And see, if someone breaks into your house and you genuinely love them, you don't automatically go for the most extreme uh, way of, of, of protecting your family. You want to protect them as well. If my son got deranged and came in and was going to, you know, was threatening my other two kids, I wouldn't immediately go for a gun, not that I have a gun, but I wouldn't, you know, just try to snuff them out. We do that because we don't value those people. That is nothing but an intruder. It's not a human being. And therefore, we feel, okay, taking their life, feel justified, feel immoral if we don't. Uh, but if we really love them, well, that changes. It reframes everything. And um, now your brain is working for creative ways to resolve this conflict short of killing anybody. I think um, de deconstructing that specific problem, I think, gets at a, a core type of uh, violence that many of us can, uh, can commit every day without even realizing it. It's a very subtle one. And it, is, it comes from this idea that really isn't the most valorous, Jesus-like thing to do to protect those vulnerable people whom God has entrusted you with at all costs, right? Like, like push came to shove. Um, didn't God entrust me to protect my children above all the other children or people in the world. And our, uh, our surrounding art and movies and writings reinforce this so much to the point where, where two coworkers can effortlessly say without a second thought, 
Um, everyone wants a sensitive man around until you, uh, someone breaks into their house. This, this um, like, I, it was very, only in the last few years that um, in reading film uh, critical theory that I was able to appreciate what has been bothering me about so many movies. And it's this genre called dad exploitation. And even if you're not a dad, you will get the idea. It, uh, the reason that these kinds of movies are so successful is because they resonate deeply in our, in generally everyone's core in some way. So dad exploitation uh, in film theory is movies about aged fathers uh, who will stop at nothing to protect their kids. I guarantee you, you've seen a movie like this at some point. There is, for example, the Taken trilogy, right? Which often, like, where, again, and this one fits the trope where the initial premise is uh, this man's daughter uh, and her daughter's friend are kidnapped and they are at risk for being put into sexual slavery. And he's got to go all around the world to try to stop literally everybody who is in his way. That is at the core, these are the types of fantasies that dads sit around like saying to themselves, well, they'll never actually be in any of those situations at all. Also, if he's so good at getting them back, why they keep getting taken? There's three movies like that. I never understood that. There's also, there are other ones too, recent takes, like Nobody. There is uh, The Tomorrow War, where a father, um, it doesn't occur to him to try to save the whole world until somehow he remembers that his daughter is in that world, and it's like, oh, okay, that's why I should want to save the world, because my daughter is in it. There is the, the Last of Us, which was this TV show on HBO, where um, in, in asking the question, or uh, it reframed uh, self-sacrifice and what it means to be a father, say, ask not what you can sacrifice for your child, ask who you can sacrifice on, in protecting your child. And of course, the answer is everyone. You can, sac you can waste everybody if it means protecting your, your daughter. Even subtly, right? It doesn't have to be like over-the-top movies like that. Even Avatar, the, the most recent one, The Way of Water, very much had this theme, sometimes with characters explicitly pontificating about the unique role that dads have in protecting their family. These are stories that we just reinforce with each other in big ways and subtle ways all the time, that you are a failure if you're not able to exert violence against people who want to do violence to you. Oppenheimer just came out very, uh, very recently. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I will soon. I have avoided spoilers, but even without seeing it, I bet there's a dad exploitation component to it. I can see, like in the trailers, you get the idea that you know this, this, these are like earnest men who are doing great sacrifice, and they're willing to uh, kill a lot of people and build technology to kill a lot of people to protect their own. I'm curious to see how much it valorizes or doesn't valorize the, the main characters in the story. But even so, I know that part of this discussion says like every dad uh, has, two, uh, uh, has two jobs, supporting his family and researching World War II. I wouldn't be, again, be surprised if Oppenheimer is very much fitting within this genre. The, the reality is that not only did Jesus have some really harsh counterintuitive things to say about responding to violence in the world, he actually had a lot of harsh counterintuitive things to say about the nuclear family as well. So this is, these are the kinds of things Jesus said in the very same contexts and passages that we were reading earlier. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
There are many, we don't have time to get into, there are many, many passages where Jesus talks exactly like this, specifically about families. There's a, a famous line too where um, he's uh, in the middle of teaching a group of people. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who is my brother? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my, my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I'm like, the guy just told him his mom was outside, he's delivering a message. And Jesus took that opportunity, making it a teaching moment, to say, we're all gonna need to think differently about who you choose to prioritize in life. And that is very hard to do too, because I know they're uh, across the board, religious people, non-religious people, it is very common for people to say, the most important thing in the world to me is my family. That's my reason to live. That is, I will do anything for them. And you might be thinking, uh, what's wrong with that? That's what my parents said to me. The reality is, like, I, I am arguing, and I think this is, and for Jesus, these are all connected things, that these kinds of perspectives come from a place where you first look out for yourself and your own, and only then do you consider what the consequences are for everybody else. At the core, that is what our violence does. We are protective and defensive of the stuff that we have, and that is not, across the board, that is not how Jesus does things. It extends even one step further in a way, again, that I think makes many of us uh, uncomfortable because we don't fully grasp the implications for how we live our lives. There is a, a, a common thought within um, uh, many circles that espouse nonviolence where they, you know, they often say, the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way it treats its animals. It's another famous quote from Gandhi. Actually, sorry, it's another famous quote that's falsely attributed <laughs> to Gandhi. So, you know, it's just, again, is it not, is it not, did, did Gandhi say anything? Have other people attributed things to him? This, no, uh, I'm kidding. Um, but I also, in learning about the sourcing of this quote years ago, honestly, I was not, I was not surprised that it was actually a Christian theologian who came to this conclusion. They are doing it from and consistent with the Jesus tradition. We're also in this weird situation in particular where um, you know, many of us, because of our economic privilege, are, uh, we find ourselves uh, where you know, we, uh, in the abstract, we will defend the systems of violence that kill the people and animals necessary for us to maintain our way of life while never in history being more distanced from the processes that it takes to accomplish those things. Now, are you, like, perhaps you were thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Omer, uh, how did we get from suffering uh, for the sake of following Jesus to you telling me to love my children and love cheeseburgers less? Like, is that, is that what you're saying? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, I am. And this is from somebody who loves my children and cheeseburgers. I think in, in that order, uh, I think. <laughs> I have many children and I've eaten many cheeseburgers. Um, and, and, it, it, and yet, this is something I have to grapple with too. And again, I think it is part of the beautiful imagination of the Christian tradition to talk about all of these things as if at its core, we are all kind of talking about the same thing. 
And really, when you, when you look back on it, one could actually argue, like you think, like, why, why is it so hard? to live in this way that Jesus is calling out. Uh, there are many different reasons that you could offer. I think one of the key things is that, um, you know, th there are uh, millions of years of evolution bearing upon us to look out for ourselves and our self-preservation and our own kin at all costs, to eat or be eaten, to kill or be killed. And it is very, and if you look at tribalism and classism and sexism, you could argue at its core, these are things that have been a part of what it means to be a human since before humans existed. But this again is what the Jesus tradition is able to do. It is able to say, just because that's the way it's been, and that's the way it is right now, that does not mean that's how it ought to be. Reasons are not excuses. You can look to nature and biology to give you ideas for how challenging it is for us to live out this ethic, but the Spirit of God has been working for billions of years before and through all the violent systems that we have created to push us towards a bigger, better world than we can imagine. There is an ethic within the Christian tradition which would say in our deep, deep past, in our mythical origins, there was a world in which humans and animals and creation were supposed to live in harmony with each other. And the extent to which we all experience violence within those systems, it is an outside intruder. It is not how things ought to be. There are similar visions in the Bible of our deep, deep mythic future where the world is headed that presents the exact same picture where there is an unbelievable kind of harmony between humans and animals and all of creation and all peoples where things like racism, classism, sexism, hunting, killing, those things simply don't exist. Nature can tell us how we got here, but God has given us a glimpse of a world through Jesus that is nothing like what we are seeing here. Those of us who follow Jesus have gotten a taste of it within our lifetimes. It is, it's, uh, it's infatuating. You, once you see that there are actually ways to truly resolve conflicts beyond the endless cycle of violence begets violence, um, it, is, it is inspiring. It inspires this kind of creativity that we will need moving forward. God is calling us to a world that is bigger and better than the one that we currently see with our eyes, one where there is no nuclear family. There is just everyone as family, where there are no guns and swords, there are gardening tools, where there is no hunting, there is just harmony. And if you see that that's where the world is headed and you see where that's how the world was intended to be, you in the middle are called to step in to that story. And you have the support of followers of Jesus everywhere for millennia to do this challenging work with. Now come to our time together at the end where we do communion together. Perhaps one of the greatest symbols that we have with each other of the unity that we share with all of humanity and the creation around us. There's as the tradition goes and as we do when we do communion every week, for in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, 
Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.